0: Tonight, I want to share some thoughts on practicing when you're not inspired. I had COVID and still have um, fatigue and... Some of the usual zest that I've become accustomed to is not available. And so I was have been reflecting on the how do we practice when we're not inspired, and the necessity to. So the first thing to say is that the times of not being inspired are part of the overall structure. It's a whole, it's a whole system. We have times we're inspired, we have times we're not. We have times where the quality of practice is really evident, times where we don't know. There's all kinds of rhythms in uh, a mature spiritual practice And if we decide we're not going to practice when we are not inspired, we undermine the whole structure. It's like removing some beams from the house. You can't have a roof without a foundation. You can't have good without bad. You can't have up without down. And what that means is that if you decide I'm not going to engage with down, you also don't get up. We don't um, need to, we don't need our mind to feel it's a good session. We don't need to feel its quality. Truly, the continuity is the most important thing. Sorry, let me, I don't know who that is, but I'm going to mute. So, the first point I want to make is that. Being uninspired is an essential part of the structure. In fact, there are things you can only learn when you continue when you're not inspired. Think about, uh, some of you are in partnerships. Think about if the times you weren't really into your partner, you just decided you were going to fold it up. And how long that relationship would last. In the times you weren't super thrilled about being married or having a particular career or whatever it is. All the more so uh, with the Dharma. But we have, <coughs> we have low energy or we have low motivation. It's not always clear how do we actually practice then. We don't want to do it or we feel... The juice is not there. So let me, let me talk some about that. If we've been practicing for a while and we've been using inspiration wisely, which is its own art, there will be seasons of everything, whether you're a painter, a husband, a parent, a spiritual practitioner, there are seasons of inspiration that may never return again and therefore it's important to deepen our relationship to that thing when we are inspired for various reasons we we ride that energy because certain things can only be accomplished when that energy is there, particular things one of the things that that can do is create, at least in dharma practice, a momentum so if we've Taken advantage of inspiration when we have it, then when we're not, there's something that will carry us along. There's something about being carried along by the river of moments. In some sense, life is a complete spiritual path, whether or not we do what we did tonight or any of the other activities. You come out of the mystery, you don't know how you got here, you exist in not knowing, you do your best, and then you die. That's a complete spiritual path, from the mystery, into a mystery, back into a mystery. And so there's just this like deep, universal river that's just carrying us anyway. We're being carried anyway through the stages of life. All the dharmas are going to present themselves anyway. To engage Buddhism is to, is to optimize that process to, you could say, to unfold the richness of the innate spiritual process that is coming from nowhere, existing nowhere basically, and returning to nowhere. Especially if spiritual longing is something we've established a relationship with. When we're not inspired, that's still carrying us. In fact, it's a crucial part of that spiritual longing, is meeting those times. The very fact that you feel like I'm not inspired to practice um, speaks volumes about how much inspiration is actually there. You probably don't say, I feel really uninspired uh, about perfecting my badminton game. Well, if you do feel that way, that means you really deeply value your badminton game. That you recognize the absence of inspiration as part of the love affair with spirit. so we're carried along in this river and especially if we've if we've engaged in times of inspiration it's still carrying us we're in that river doesn't mean it's not really uh, uncomfortable another thing that we can study in times when we're not inspired is well. what does it mean to not practice anyway? When you're not practicing what does that mean you're doing? We get a little bit closer to what what is the nuts and bolts of a Dharma practiced life. On one level you may not be spending time on your cushion. Or you may be avoiding your teacher or not studying or whatever it is you do when you're inspired, you stop doing it. And you can say, well, I'm not practicing because I'm not doing X, Y, Z. But more fundamentally, what is it to not practice? Apparently, in one of the very old Rinzai monasteries in Japan, there's um, a, a sign. and I love this. And the sign says three things on it. It says, don't be deluded, number one. Don't be deluded. Number two, if you must be deluded, don't open your mouth. Number three, if you must be deluded and open your mouth, please leave. <laughs> Isn't that great? Great. So the first thing that really encompasses practice, to not be diluted, which is a big study for us. What does that mean to not be diluted? Not being diluted in the first five years of practice is different than for after the first five years, and probably that continues, like what that means to not be diluted, but we can get our best sense of when we're diluted and what it means to interrupt that, to not be diluted. That's what it means to uh, practice. It doesn't mean to add like some Buddhist juicy stuff on top of the life you already have. A really good working definition of practice is to not be diluted, to the best of our understanding of that. And then the second principle is if we're not going to interrupt delusion, the least we can do is not subject other people to that. And if we feel we can't help but subject other people to that, it'd be better to stay in our room, and not, not engage at all. Which is actually not possible in a training monastery because everybody lives so on top of each other. The stakes are really high. So that's why a sign like that is pretty funny. Don't be deluded. If you must be deluded, don't open your mouth or open your wallet or open your pants. You could, there's lots of ways we could extrapolate this or open the refrigerator. The four thoughts that turn the mind is a core, core thing to touch into. Now, there are a number of really good books about the four thoughts that turn the mind. And the weakness of Zen is that it's not well organized as a training system. And the weakness of Tibetan Buddhism is that it's well organized as a training system. But for us, that's a strength if we're mostly in Zen tradition to learn from that organization. The four thoughts that turn the mind are considered preliminaries essential ways that you train the mind to understand why do you practice. And they can be a way of catalyzing inspiration. And this is not a four thoughts that turn the mind to talk, but just to touch on them. Impermanence is a thought that turns the mind to the Dharma. That everything changes and all opportunities are fleeting. And all of us, 5 to 10 years from now, will have less energy than we do now and probably more health problems. Just a fact. 20 years down the line, even more so. Just a fact to reflect on. Related to that is death. That nobody cheats death. It comes for everybody. It comes whether you like it or not. It could be really painful. It could be tonight. So if we do have the desire to get on with the spiritual path, and if there are petty internal arguments, or if we're caught in meaningless to us, I don't know what your life is, and I'm not judging your life as meaningful or meaningless, but to our own integrity, if we're caught in meaningless... Eddies, then the reflection on death can cut through that. To really think about it. Not only will we have less energy in five years or ten years, definitely significantly less in 20 years, we may have no energy in five years, ten years, twenty years. Then the, uh, the next thought that turns the mind is karma. And what karma means is that we are continually, without any interruption, um, designing the future version of ourselves by what we say, think, and do. There are environmental and genetic factors. There are cultural factors, influences. If If Russia decides to invade the United States of America, I know I'm just playing with an idea... Um, everything will be turned upside down, right? Or if Mexico invades us, whatever. But aside from those external X factors, what we're doing and what we have been doing with our thoughts and our actions and our bodies is the prime factor in who we're going to be in the future. And so this um, reflection puts us, reminds us of the creative potency that we are wielding over our own future. Um, Especially on the level of mind. Because you could be a gold star exerciser, vegan, and drop dead tomorrow of a brain aneurysm. But your mind, especially with the technology of the Dharma, um, you have a great influence of what kind of mind you're going to have in 5 years, 10 years, or 20 years. And that's a big deal. Then the fourth of the the thoughts that turn the mind is, given all of these things, the opportunity to practice the Dharma is really precious. One could um, take responsibility for karma, and for the brevity of life, and really do something extraordinary. And what is extraordinary in this world is to sincerely practice the spiritual path. Because it's boring a lot of the time. right? And our hedonistic impulse overrides our wisdom. So to really do it, to really invest in um, training the heart-mind is precious and extraordinary. Because if you do so, you'll be an example for other people. We're not special because we do so, but we're rare because the hedonistic impulse is so strong. It's never been stronger. It's never been easier to escape into hedonism. So let me um, shift gears a bit. Um, That might not work. I really encourage you to study and, and do the reflections of the four thoughts that turn the mind. But sometimes it won't work. Sometimes something in you will, will either be too tired or it'll be like, I don't give a shit. Like, bring it on. Whatever's coming next, bring it on. I don't have um, the energy. And actually, we need to work on the level of energy. Your life is not entirely um, a mind and it's rationality and a biological body. Energy is a real thing. The dimension of energy in your being is a real thing. I um, Adrian and I decided to go out in thunderstorms on 4th of July to um, a river. It was actually quite beautiful and I was deep in this COVID fatigue and feeling like I could hardly even like move. And as soon as I got in the moving water, the earth started to move my energy for me. One of the ways we're fooled by modernity and and separation is that we feel like it's all up to us, right? And the us can include an antidepressant or, you know, Whatever it might include, but a sense of isolation that is completely, um, is a very limited idea. There are other forces. And so I experienced through no like, like intelligence of my own, just being in this running water started to move my energy and I started to get cheered up the rain falling on my skin and the fresh air and the movement of the water started to change my energy. We aren't separate. And so when lack of inspiration comes, think of the earth as medicine. One of the things that is a precedent in our lineage is Practitioners of Zen and Chan and all its auxiliary lineages, they used to just walk around in forests and mountains for no reason. A lot. When they were depressed, they didn't like sit in a room with their phone and order takeout. They walked in nature. That was what you did. That was what you did. There was no entertainment. That was entertainment. And so the the old rhythm, which we can't replicate, but we could take as an archetypal map, is that they would practice intensely, and then they would get out of the monasteries, and they would just wander around in the mountains and forests. It's just energy medicine. And especially our Chinese and our, our East Asian ancestors really understood qi or qi or prana And nature as one thing. So if we feel uninspired, a good question is, how much time do I spend sitting in one of these man-made boxes that are so depressing? So nature. Nature has its own energy sweeps. Even to just go be hot in the desert... People are into Bikram yoga. People will pay $20 to go be hot in a room and sweat a lot. It's better than nothing, but what is that really about? When was the last time you just lied under a tree? That was when um, Buddha... ...had their breakthrough into enlightenment. It wasn't actually when they were meditating hardcore. It was when they sat down under a tree and just stopped. That's really instructive. So energy is something to um, really consider. And if if a good teacher will also know when it's time to do a practice that's related to energy... Often people are so stubborn they won't do it, but nonetheless, at least to get the suggestion. This, is what chanting is about, is a movement of energy, or bowing is a movement of energy, a movement of energy. Once in a while, when we really are uninspired, and that endures, especially if we've gone from being an inspired practitioner. Or an inspired painter, for that matter. An inspired whatever. And it it really, we lose that inspiration. Sometimes we need a new practice. Sometimes we need a new teacher. Sometimes we need a new community. There are times when that is true. More often than not, that's actually a distraction from really working with energy. But sometimes it's really helpful. So if flatness endures and the deep turning towards it doesn't change things, sometimes a new setting is actually the right thing. The the trick is about low inspiration and any of the low energy feeling states or emotions. And this is a trick I fall for even after a long time in practice, is that when we're in a low-energy state, we tend on the level of the mind to fall into hope or despair. And therefore, we never actually marinate in the low-energy state itself, which is a form of nowness. There is actually tremendous richness for example in sadness but we're often so afraid of sadness that we despair we make a story up we make a narrative up about it and get more and more distant from the purity of the emotion from the purity from the pure um, humbleness of feeling and being in a low energy state hope and despair which are mind made which are conclusions about what we're feeling You have to really study this. Disconnect us from the the essence of the experience. So that's a thing. To connect with the the purity of the low energy state. I, I say this knowing how hard it is. We're so afraid of it. To do spiritual practice means you will go through many deaths. You will. Rumi said something like, true mystics die countless times. We will come to a time when our life and our inspiration grinds to a halt, and that's important. But if we leap into hope or despair at those times then lack of inspiration becomes an obstacle rather than the gateway to the new thing this is why we need each other getting a second opinion is always is always vital so this was just for me <laughs> really But I hope, I think we're all the same essentially, so I hope um, some of this is, is useful. Most important thing is to not regard it as a mistake when you're in a low inspiration time, but an essential time to stay engaged in whatever way you can muster, or else the whole thing gets compromised. There's a book by a woman named Mirabai Starr, who's a very um, very deep practitioner, not a Buddhist, uh, but very deep practitioner and translator. And about 10 years ago, she translated uh, St. John of the Cross's Dark Night of the Soul text. And for whatever reason, Buddhists have never really written about the phenomena of the dark night of the soul and the dark night of the senses which are two um, very particular spiritual conditions and that's related to um, working with low inspiration it's a big view on what that is so if you're um, it's good spiritual education to read those texts some of the older translations might be Um, too Christian for a Buddhist practitioner, but she tried to translate it in such a way that it was more broadly accessible. So I can recommend that, especially if you're going through one of these kind of times. That's good stuff. Yeah, Kozan. Uh,
1: Following along on that thought there, um, you know, one thing that Christians do very well is suffer. So there's some inspiration there. Say, uh, Mother Teresa had a huge dry spell where she felt that uh, God had completely abandoned her, and yet she continued her work through that. So there's a certain sense of inspiration for me, seeing those that have gone before and, uh, and was able to move through it. And, and eventually she did, although she couldn't have told you why and how it happened. Yeah. So. I think that's helpful. Another mm-hmm. like is a, a Christian a contemplative, uh, John Butler, who had huge periods of depression and suffering, and really moved into a space of complete a beautiful soul. So to be inspired by, I'm inspired by those stories, knowing that my suffering is not an end game; it's just part of a continuum.
0: Yeah, beautiful. The, uh, in the Tibetan tradition, they say some of the deepest blessings come from reading the autobiographies of the great practitioners. Now, there's this thing called hagiography, which is when devotees edit out all of the humanity to make people sound extraordinary. The advantage of more modern, modern tales like this is people are willing to include their depression. And that's really, that's really important. And one more thought is part of the way that someone like uh, uh, Mother Teresa is able to continue is they get so um, woven into the structures of spiritual life. It's not so simple to abandon it, which I experienced as an ordained person and is harder for a lay person because no, if you some of us, if we tell our partners we're going to stop, they're probably going to celebrate like, great, we can go on vacation instead of you going on retreat. So that's a problem of lay people. Um, but one way that that is, you can solve that is you just get really involved in the Sangha and you make commitments so that even if you don't feel like it, you keep, you're showing up anyway. Uh, Dominique, we don't see you, but I bet we could hear you. It's okay. Oh, hi.
1: It's... Purporting to be Dominique. Oh, (laughs) Um, I just, there's a lot I got tonight. Um, And I was thinking about this kind of like revelation I had several years ago while in a pretty intense depression. That um, I realized like depression and grief are different depression for me is, like, staying in, like, a loop, but, like, grief is cathartic, and part of what I realized, I, I don't know if it's exactly correct, but part of what I realized is, like, that my choice to be depressed, whatever part of me it is that is at, that is choosing, is, um, was about avoiding the up and down of feelings and the, like, being present with the, all of the waves, and that was a way to just flatten, um, and that's been really helpful for me in other times of depression since then, um, like, even to be grateful to the depression, like, this is too much right now, I don't think I can sit with all these ups and downs, so... Thank you for flattening this and numbing me for a little while until I feel ready, skilled and supportive enough to feel all the waves. I don't know exactly how that relates, but
0: that's okay. Very much, me. yeah. Beautiful insights. Yeah. And it only comes out of actually studying that state. If you you were able to swallow a magic pill and not be depressed, that wisdom could not be had.
1: Yes, and I wished for that for a really long time, and I couldn't ever find a way out. So, (laughs) my dad says, um, let go or be dragged. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of my favorites.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Crazy thing is when we're in these states, it's hell. And to have this conversation is like, you can't have this conversation with someone who's actually in it. So these are, this is like hindsight's wisdom that we hope carries over to the next time we get depressed. Yeah. So one of the things, if you do um, take up the study of the dark night of the soul and the dark night of the spirit, is you see that these are not the same as depression. That whether you wanted it or not, when you engage spiritual life, you open up different qualities of being that are not ordinary. And so if one is going through a dark night of the soul... Um, nothing of the ordinary is actually going to work. What would work for depression won't work for a dark night of the soul because it's not psychological. It's a spiritual malady that's important. But sometimes they they come together too. So things are not uh, neat and clean as they are in the movies.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to say um, thank you for speaking about this topic. And um, I really related to the way you were describing energy in nature. Um, I've really found that to be true for me. Um, Sometimes I have to get outside that. I just know that, just from experience, that it just doesn't seem like anything's going to unstick me, and then I get outside. Um, and then the other thing was, um, just for me, to what Claire was saying, too, that, um, there's a, um, significance, I guess, of relationship. And that's, that's just one way of how I've articulated it myself. Mm-hmm. I guess is how am I relating to experience in this low energy or this, you know, whatever kind of energy it is. For me, it's really hard not to want to reject that energy. It seems bad, right? Mm-hmm. It seems like, how can I want this? I have to not want it. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like almost a catch too, because it's like, well, the strategy, anything I try to do to get rid of it is rejecting yeah and so it's just somehow unearthing this um this acceptance isn't even the right word, right this ownership, this embrace mm-hmm. of the energy, and that's that's really hard part for me, but um something that I have found was needed in order to actually not struggle against it and mm-hmm. be able to, um, to be with it,
0: yeah yeah that's the hope that's the hope despair dynamic right there, nicely said. Yeah. All right, well, it's my it's my bedtime, so thank you, everybody.